on staff here, and I too love bread. How many love bread? Yes. It's, Bob, you don't like bread? I don't believe you. You like bread. Okay. I love bread. Bread, bread, when you think about it, shows up a lot in the Bible. In the Bible times, bread was a staple part of everyone's everyday diet. Bread was used in worship in the scriptures. It was used both in the tabernacle and in the temple worship. Um, bread was a, a central part of hospitality in the Bible. I think of that story with Abraham and Sarah entertaining the, the guests, the angels, God, and, and just the extravagant, extravagant amount of bread that was made for, for that occasion. And then when the Israelites were led through the desert, you know, after their miraculous escape from Egypt, they were, fr- they were um, fed by bread from heaven, manna. Bread is multiplied in the feeding of the 4,000, in the 5,000. And in this scene from this TV series called The Chosen, bread is apparently Jesus' favorite food. And and just to say a quick word, um, The Chosen is a a brand new TV series on the life of Jesus. It just came out recently. Uh, You have to download an app on your phone to watch it, and then you can stream it to your TV. Or you can do the old-fashioned way, order the DVDs or the Blu-rays. Um, and I'm always hesitant to, in, to endorse anything from up front because, you know, I, I, I don't want to overuse the influence up here. But I just got to say this. This might be the best portrayal of the Jesus story I've seen on media, on screen. It, 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 there's one season completed so far. Uh, they're going to work on multiple seasons. It just kind of breathes life into the characters surrounding Jesus, into their backstories, and what it might have been like to be them in that day, and what it was like then to have an encounter with Jesus and to be invited by Jesus to follow him. Um, it's a great series. Uh, Tori and I have uh, some people from our neighborhood coming over tonight to start watching this series with us as a family, and we're just really I'm excited about that. So that's where that scene came from. In, in this scene, you, you have Jesus with these children, and they ask him the kind of questions that children would probably ask people. Hey, what's your favorite food? And Jesus says, bread, for many reasons. And, and later, you know, um, you know we, we have this recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus says this. He says, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And right after that, in, in John 6 35, Jesus declares this I am statement. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. John 6 35. But nowhere is bread more powerfully symbolized than at the communion table. And, and I love this what N.T. Wright says. He says this. He said, when Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. And this morning we're going to talk about that meal. So will you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for the privilege it is to gather this morning as your family, as your children, and to gather around this table and all that it represents and means. Jesus, you truly are the bread from heaven that gives life to the world. And I pray this morning as, as we kind of look at some scripture stories um, that you would bring life to us through your truth, through your way, 
through your life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you or an app on your device, to turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Um, three of the Gospels record uh, this scene with Jesus when he has what is often called the Last Supper or communion, you know, with his disciples. Um, I'm going to be reading from Luke, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. And I'm just going to read from the scriptures through verse 20, and Pete will make it happen on the screen if you want to follow along that way too. But Lord, as, as we open up and read your living, breathing word, may it sort of shatter any stones that we have in our heart soil. May it burn any thorns that have grown up in our heart soil. And and may our heart soil be cleared and be receiving of your truth today. May it be planted deep and may it take root and produce fruit. Luke 22, beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired, I love that part, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. This Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples is often referred to as the Last Supper. At least that's how it's titled in that section in in my Bible. It's a scene, right, that has been visually immortalized by a famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci uh, by the same name called The Last Supper. Have you ever seen this photo or this painting? Anyone actually seen the original? You have. The way I understand it, the original is quite large. It's quite big. It's like 15 feet by 29 feet, and it's actually painted fittingly, I think, on, the, on a dining hall wall in a church in Italy uh, in 19, or 1495 is when he painted that. It's a, it's a masterpiece. Now, for such a masterpiece of a painting, though, it's not a very accurate portrayal of what the meal would have been like in Jesus' time. So let me uh, sort of deconstruct a little bit of of how Leonardo da Vinci presented it in his painting. Um, The men in the painting, in his painting, are all fairly light-skinned, fair-haired. They're dressed in 15th century Renaissance-type clothing. Uh, 
that wouldn't have been, you know, what they looked like uh, in Jesus's day. Probably, rightfully, you know, Leonardo's probably trying to insert the people of his day in, in participation in this meal. So he takes some artist liberties. Uh, the Passover meal actually would always be taken in the evening after sundown to replicate the Exodus story. But in his painting, it's more of a sky blue in the, in the background out the window. There's no candles in there to try to, to illuminate an evening meal. The Passover meal would have included roasted lamb in matzah, which would have been unleavened bread. But in Leonardo's dis- portrayal of it, you know, you see some fish on the table and the bread sort of looks like it has yeast in it. There's even crystal glasses in his painting, which wouldn't have been present back in Jesus's day. And in Jesus's day, they didn't sit in chairs. Like as, as Luke described to us, they reclined. You would recline around a low three-sided table called the triclinium, and you would be kind of on your left side, on your hip and on your elbow, reclining on some pillows, using your right hand to eat. Um, and the guest of honor wouldn't have been in the center, but would have been in the second position from the right. So, Brendan, I'm going to hand this off to you. It's got an error there. Can you make that fixed for me? Brendan fixes everything for us around here. Um, so I want to go back to Luke 22, verses 14 through 16. Go back to the passage now. I just want to kind of breathe some, some life in, into what this meal was all about between Jesus and the disciples. So it's, Luke tells us it's the Passover meal. It's the Passover meal. This, you know, sometimes called the Seder meal. Um, it, it was an integral part of Jewish faith and Jewish identity. Jews observed this Passover meal every year to remember the event that ultimately freed them from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Remember that story? Remember the, the Exodus story? You have Moses versus Pharaoh. You have the one true God of Israel versus the gods of Egypt. And remember there's the plagues and then that last plague, that last plague that God, that God sends over the land is death to all the firstborns of the land, both human and animals, both Egyptian and Jewish, death to all the firstborns of every family, except, remember this part of the story? Except the firstborns of the Israelite families were spared. Why? Because God had instructed them ahead of time to take a lamb, prepare a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, eat the lamb, and to take the blood of the lamb and to smear it on the door frames of their houses. Then that night, when, when the, the destroyer, when, when the, the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt, if he saw the blood of the lamb on the door frames of the household, he would pass over. He would pass over that home. And that night, amidst deep wailing in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh let God's people go. It was the Israelites' great salvation story and event. And it's one that God instructed them, even before that happened, to commemorate and to celebrate and to remember every year with a meal and a festival. It's no coincidence, is it? It's no coincidence that Jesus chooses and co-ops this meal to begin a new tradition to begin a new tradition to remember the ultimate salvation event 
that was about to go down. The fulfillment of John the Baptist's words when when he prepares the way for Jesus, when he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or as the other John describes at the end of the Bible in Revelation, when he he gives us this picture of worship that's happening in the heavenlies, worship of the Lamb of heaven, when he says, For you were slain, and your blood, and through your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Excuse me. It's after this Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples. Thanks a lot, Brendan. Appreciate that. After this supper that Jesus has with his disciples, he's arrested. He's arrested out in a garden. And then he's raced, fast-tracked through a trial. He's flogged, severely beaten to the point of just shy of death. And then by 9 a.m., he's nailed to a cross where he painfully, slowly suffocates for six hours. Can you imagine the disciples after those events took place, thinking back to this supper, that night reclining around the table with Jesus in that upper room, and thinking, oh, oh, no longer is bread simply bread. No longer is the cup simply wine. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And ever since, the church has been remembering Jesus' sacrifice through the bread and through the cup, down through the generations. That's why um, you know, Luke describes the early church this way. It's a verse that we've been centering around really since last fall, right? In Acts 2.42, when Luke gives a description of the early church, he says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. He goes on, everyone was filled with awe and at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles and all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So when you read that, do you, do you find yourself like I do sometimes? Like, So what did Luke mean when he said they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread? Like, is, it, is he referring to like what we think of as communion? Or, or is he re- referring to or you know, referencing like a, a meal that they would have together? Because it says they met in their homes daily and, and they broke bread. Like, what does Luke mean? Is it communion or is it a meal? And I think the answer is yes. That's what he means. It's, it's both. I, I think Luke calling the breaking of bread um, is most definitely a reference in, to the remembering of the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. We today might call it communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, you know, which means Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. 
But their celebration of the Lord's Supper, their devotion to the breaking of bread, also referred to a meal that they would have, like a a true, real meal in a home. And at some point during the meal, maybe probably at the beginning of the meal, someone would take bread and would, would, you know, maybe say a couple words and pass it around and everyone would take a piece of the bread and they would remember that Jesus' body was broken for them. Someone would take the cup and maybe say a few words and pass it around and everyone would take a drink and they would remember Jesus' blood shed for them on the cross. They would, they would, through the bread in the cup, remember that God's judgment of sin has passed over them because of the blood of the lamb Jesus shed for them and was instead absorbed by Jesus on the cross instead of us. And, and they, would, they would remember and they would celebrate. And that would kind of lead into just a, a great time of joyful fellowship around food, around a meal. They, they, it would be called a love feast or an agape feast that they would have together. It would be like you or me around our tables at home with family and friends, having bread and just simply taking the bread and and just reminding ourselves that Jesus' body was broken for us and taking a piece and passing it around. And It would be like taking a cup. Maybe it's not wine. Maybe it's not juice, but taking a cup and just remembering that that Jesus' blood was shed for us or, or doing something like that as you gather for a meal and fellowship with your missional community um, or, or with family and friends. You know, just this past Tuesday, just this past Tuesday, um, our elders gathered uh, just in that room right over there. And uh, we had spent um, kind of bringing to a conclusion 40 days of prayer and fasting that, that we've been engaged in as leaders of this church. And we spent the last 24 hours of those 40 days fasting and we came together, and before we did anything else, we had communion. And it was very simple. Brendan just took some bread, and he said a few words, and he passed the loaf around, and we each took a piece of bread, and we ate it, and we had the cup, and we drank of it, and then we feasted. And then we, Laurie DeVisser had brought in this amazing meal, these incredible cinnamon rolls, and, and we feasted, and we enjoyed fellowship together. And uh, it it was like an agape feast. It was a love feast. Remembering Jesus' love for us demonstrated on the cross and remembering and, and enjoying our love for each other. The early church, Luke said, not just had communion every now and then, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Daily, I'm sure, and and sometimes it it happened daily, and for sure weekly, or just as often as they they got together and had this meal, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It's, It's what helped them keep Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection at the center of of all that they did, of their common shared life together. As a way of practicing devotion to the breaking of bread to help them keep Jesus at the center, what we've decided to do as a church is we're going to, between now and Easter, like Dwight mentioned at the beginning, we've decided every Sunday we're going to practice devotion to the breaking of bread by having communion be part of our gathering, our, our, our life together. Um, when we come together on Sunday mornings. We might do it a little differently some Sundays. Some Sundays we might do it more at the beginning of the gathering. Sometimes it might be at the end. Um, But we're we're just going to keep the table central, front and center 
of our gathering during the season of Lent, taking us up through Easter. Just like we did when we practiced devotion to um, the Apostles' teaching and this Bible reading plan came out. Now we have a podcast even. Just like when we, when we talked about practicing devotion to prayer and we did a 24-hour prayer room. Just like when we talked over the last few weeks about devotion to fellowship and um, we've got opportunities coming up to come together, to have meal together. Um, This is how we're going to practice being devoted to the breaking of bread over these next weeks. But but here's the deal, and I I want to draw some attention to this too. Just, Just like all good things that God gives us. You know, throughout the scriptures, through, throughout, you know, creation, just like all good things and practices that God gives us, we as fallen sinners seem to always find a way to get off track. We always seem to find a way to sort of like get off track. It's been our story since the garden. The early church had its struggles too, you know, with things like this, even with, with good things like communion. And to illustrate, I just want to reach back to Brendan's message on February 2 when he talked about how our fellowship is our witness. And you remember how he began that message? He, he showed this slide right here, which is like a, a big drone shot of, is it going to come up? I hit the button. Okay, just like a big drone shot of Corinth, you know, because they had drones back in that day and they'd send them up and take aerial photos. And so this is Corinth. Okay, this is Corinth. And remember how Brendan took us on an imagination journey through the streets of Corinth and we're on our way to, to Chloe's house, to, to her apartment. Um, and I just want to like reimagine that again. Like imagine you're weaving your way through the streets of Corinth, you're going past all the elaborate temples and so forth and, and you're on your way to Chloe's apartment and you're anticipating when you arrive that you're going to enjoy um, sweet fellowship with the body of believers, with, with the early church. And you know it's going to begin with bread and with wine. And you're going to be reminded again of Jesus' extravagant love for you through the simple breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. And, and you're looking forward to then the meal that's going to follow that because you are a farmer, let's say, or a laborer who has been working all day from sun up to sundown. And, and you're hungry. And, and you're looking forward to this time with the fellowship of the believers. And you finally get to Chloe's apartment and you knock on the door and Chloe opens the door and you realize right away that the meal has already started. As a matter of fact, it feels like the meal is kind of concluded. Um, like you look at the table behind Chloe where all the food is and there's hardly anything left because the wealthy people who don't have to labor all day from sunup to sundown, who have the luxury of arriving early, have arrived early and started without you. And as a matter of fact, it feels like they've really been enjoying the wine quite a bit. And uh, there's some, I think there's some people drunk in this house, in this apartment. Imagine what that would feel like as you look forward to, the, to this, this experience with the body of Christ and then you don't get to experience it. And as a matter of fact, there's nothing left for you. That's why Paul had to write what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, if you want to go to that slide, 1 Corinthians... Yeah, you just do the slides from now on, Pete. This thing's got an error going on. So um, on 1 Corinthians 11, that, that's where Paul writes these words. And I'm, I'm not going to put them all up on the screen, but I want to read just a, a few of them. 
um, and then we'll put some on the screen beginning in verse 23. But I'm going to start reading in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. So that's what's going on in Corinth, which re- propels Paul to write these words. He says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I think he's being sarcastic right there. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And then verse 23, we'll put this one up on the screen. You've heard these words. Paul says this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Paul says, listen, you Corinthians. I want you to examine yourself before you come and have this meal together. And he says, I want you to discern the body. Discern the body. Because I think what Paul's trying to remind the Corinthians of, and by extension now us, is this. Communion, there's not just this vertical dimension to communion. There's this horizontal dimension too. This is something we do in community. This is something we do in communion, in fellowship, in presence with one another. In, partic- in this, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we experience not just the Lord's body broken for us, but, but His body among us here on earth. And what was going on in, in Corinth was you have the very meal that was meant to be inclusive and unifying across all peoples of all races, of all genders, of all ages, of all social economic classes. You know, we're all just spiritual beggars in search of bread. Instead, it was being abused. And and it was being used to actually create division in the body of Christ. The needy were being neglected. People were coming to the table and, and neglecting they're brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and they, they were living in such a way that was causing harm to their brothers and sisters in Christ. So, so Paul felt like, I need to give a little tongue lashing here to the Corinthians. Because this isn't just 
a, a meal where you experience, you know, the broken body of Christ, you also experience the body of Christ. But even in its abuses, you know, the Lord's Supper is a beautiful thing. Communion, the breaking of bread, it, w- it was central to the life of the early church. It was a part of their common life together. And, you know, just as history began to unfold, um, unfortunately, but it, it happened. Unfortunately, what happened is this, this part, the communion part, eventually sort of became separated from the meal part. You know, what, what started out as a significant meal practice over time became an institution of the church. Now, I'm oversimplifying history here. I know I am. But some 300 years later, after Jesus had that meal in that upper room with his disciples, the Roman leader Constantine, maybe you've heard of him, he came to faith. He became a Christian. And he suddenly decided to legalize Christianity. And what happened with that is um, Christianity began over time. It was slow, but over time began to be less about home gatherings and more about big building gatherings and, and cathedrals. And communion became less and less frequent in the homes and more and more frequent in the big buildings and cathedrals. And it began to be administrated by the professionals, you know, just like it, what I, it always happens when anything gets institutionalized is we, we try to control it and we try to have power over it. And, and we start asking questions like, well, who is this for and, and who should serve? And, you know, maybe we should have a class or an age requirement or something like that. And, and the very gift that Jesus gave for everyone suddenly isn't so easily available to everyone anymore. I mean, I remember my earliest memories of communion, um, kind of growing up in Rehoboth Reformed Church in Lucas, Michigan. I remember that weird time in the service when like these big silver trays would be passed up and down the rows and there's these, somebody cut bread into teeny little perfect squares and there would be these little cups and like I, I, I was excited to hold it but I couldn't take it. I just had to pass it on and I, my favorite part was playing with those little rubber rings where you put the cups afterwards. Like all through the service you take those apart and you put them back together and um, I knew that it was special. I even knew in, as a child that, that, that this was, you know, an ex- this, this somehow was connected with, with Jesus dying on the cross for us, and he loved us, but I, it wasn't for me. Or I, I was even talking to, to Scott DeYoung. I know he's, he's out skiing right now, but um, I was talking to him on Tuesday, and he shared a story with us as elders, like a memory he has of, of going as a guest to a church in another state long ago, and it happened to be a communion Sunday, and even just as he walked in, you know, somebody came over to him and said, hey, like, uh, were you thinking on having communion today? Because uh, you can't, because you're not a part of this church, and we don't know you, and we don't know where you're at with God. And I mean, that used to be the elder's job, right? And I mean, the, the, it's, it's what it becomes when something becomes institutionalized. Somehow along the way, We've lost the simplicity of this table. I really believe that. We've gotten so worried about who's in and who's out. And and, and so we we try to police it. And we try to put fences around it. Here's a newsflash. You can't put a fence around Jesus. Jesus will not be fenced in. It doesn't work. 
I'm not saying we, we take this meal casually. Not at all. I'm saying the opposite. Yet, let's also not overthink it. Can you go to that next slide, Pete? This is a, a long quote that David Dockery says about, you know, the highest form of corporate Christian worship is the Lord's Supper. The, the celebration of the supper directs our attention backward to the work of Christ on the cross, also encourages us to look forward to the second coming of Christ. In addition, it provides time for believers to examine their personal relationship with God as well as their relationship with each other, the body. Um, but I love this last part. This is the part I wanted to focus on. The observance is one so simple. A child can partake with a sense of understanding, yet it contains so many theological ramifications that even the most mature believer will not fully comprehend its meaning. So, so let's, in our attempt to, to protect it, let's not overcomplicate it. This is a simple meal with, with, with a simple symbolism. Can you go back to that, go ahead to that slide again of the picture of, of Da Vinci? I mean, there, there is a mystery to, 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 to this meal. But no doubt, here's what I know with simple clarity it's for you, and it's for me. Remember, I said there's a lot of things that Da Vinci got wrong, you know, in his portrayal of this moment. Jesus is. Last Supper with his disciples. There's one thing I know crystal clear Da Vinci got right about this painting. Seated around that table are 12 men who Jesus knew within hours of this meal were going to abandon him. Seated around this table, reclining at this table with Jesus, was a disciple named Peter who Jesus knew was going to deny ever knowing him three times. Around this table was a guy named Judas, who Jesus knew was going to hand him over to be arrested, beaten, and crucified. Yet, go to that next slide. Don't forget the words Jesus said to those guys said, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. It's for you. It's for you. I was reading this book by Hugh Halter called Sacrilege. He, he said this. He said, on any given Sunday, in millions of communion lines across the world, there are men who have cheated at work, embittered their own children, spent hours surfing porn, or belittled their wives with hurt, hurtful words. There are women who bow at the shrine of materialism exterior beauty and self-centeredness. There are singles who have not traversed the gauntlet of social parties, dating and sexual appetites with sinlessness. Our lines of sacrament are full of smokers, gambling addicts, crooked politicians, 
priestly pedophiles, arrogant pastors, prostitutes, yoga instructors. I don't know why they're in there. (laughs) And yes, even lawyers. Again, you must have a beef with lawyers. And guess what? That's how Jesus wanted it. I want to invite the band forward. Here's what I want us to catch this morning. This meal we call communion. It isn't some kind of reward you get. You get to participate in because you've achieved some level of obedience or devotion or holiness. Jesus gave bread and wine to men he knew would betray him in just a few hours. Jesus doesn't seem too worried in that moment about these guys taking his grace for granted. Matter of fact, he was certain they were going to. They were going to take his grace for granted. He doesn't seem overly concerned about who's at the table. So why should we? Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is for you. Jesus is for you. Every time we walk in this room and we see this table and we see that bread and we see that cup, may we be simultaneously overwhelmed with, I need that. I need that grace. And I'm so thankful for that grace. And because of that grace, I want to live for him. Every time we invite people to share in the remembrance of Christ's broken body and his generously flowing blood that covers us, it's a perpetual invitation to come as we are and to maybe meet Jesus for the first time or to just fall in love a little more with our Savior. For sure. Parents, this is something you should talk about with your kids and have conversations about. But I'm here to say, if you're here this morning, whatever your age, no matter where you are at in your relationship or understanding of God, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and if you believe that His body was broken for you and His blood was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, if you at least understand at some level that this bread and this juice represents Jesus' love for you, you are welcome at this table. Let me pray. Jesus, you are the bread of life that has come down from heaven and you give life to the world. Jesus, you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and Christ rose for us. So this morning, we simply receive that. We participate in that and we do this in remembrance of you. May it be something we never forget. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, we're going to have communion now. And this is the feast that Jesus prepared for us. It points us to the eternal feast we get to have with Jesus in heaven one day. 
And people are going to come from east and west and north and south, and everyone is going to sit at the table of the kingdom of God, and Jesus is going to serve us. That's what scripture says. So let's pray. Blessed are you, God, our Father, King of the universe, because you made us. You made the whole cosmos. You made the entire universe. You made it in love. And you made us in your image. You pressed your image onto us and you said, these are my children and they are to represent me and rule and reign like me in the world with my love and my justice and my peace and my righteousness. But God, we refused. We turned away from you and we said we'd like to do things our own way. We think we know what's best. And we turned away from you and rebelled from your plan for us. But God, in your great mercy, you, didn't, you weren't satisfied with that. You chased us down, and in your love, you made covenant with us. You said, I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. I will pursue you to the ends of the earth. And so you sent your son, Jesus, who we celebrate and we worship, who lived a sinless life, who went to the cross on our behalf to show us the full extent of your love, God, and died on the cross and went down into hell, but resurrected from the grave and rose again so the tomb is empty and we worship him today. He's the one who's conquered death forever and proclaimed that death cannot hold us. Those who are in Christ have been renewed and rescued from the enemy and set free for life eternal. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and make this meal for us the very presence of Christ, that we would be included with him in his life and his death and his resurrection. Make us your church now, Jesus. So, Holy Spirit, come upon this meal, that it be more than just bread and juice, but be for us the very presence of Christ that we want to feast upon, so that your whole church would be gathered soon, that you'd come back soon, that you'd restore us soon, into your family, Jesus, once and for all. Amen. So today, come to the table, not because you're old or mature in faith, but because in the light of eternity, we are all young. We're all figuring this stuff out, and we all have a lot to grow. Come because your faith is young. Don't come because you're religious. Come because you're hungry. You're hungry for Jesus. Don't come because you're perfect. Come because you need fixing. You need help. You need God's grace. Don't come because you know everything, but because you want to know more. You want to know more about Jesus. You want to know Jesus. If that's you, then I encourage you to come forward. I'm going to invite the communion service to come forward now. And uh, the way we're going to do this 